Love the control. Love the command. Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. So good afternoon and welcome to Love the Words here on East Leeds Community Radio. I'm in Studio One, which is beautifully sunlit through the stained glass window. And I've got uh, some wonderful things for you this afternoon. Um, We've got James Moran talking about his new book, Mechanism. That's James Lewis Moran, of course, the Seacroft poet, in case you confused him with another. He is not to be confused with any other James Lewis Morans. Uh, Yeah, so we're going to be hearing some poetry from Mechanism. And also we're going to be talking to Oz Hardwick, who uh, has news of a really interesting new uh, anthology of writing, Making a Difference, a selection of neurodiverse poets. And actually, James has, I think, three poems in there. I do, yes. So, but first of all, it's fantastic to have Vicky Orton back with us. Vicky is, I, I have no shame in saying, is our resident storyteller. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so it's very nice to have you back, Vicky. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, I always love being here and, yeah, the sun shining through the stained glass. It's beautiful, yeah. And you've got a, a brand new story for us. I have a brand new story for you, yeah. Um and it's it's a true story, of course. I think you'll have to tell it. <laughs> well, Gina, it's a story that's been in my family for generations and generations, which is why I know it's a true, true story, obviously. And uh, I don't know why I've never told it before, really. Um, it's about some distant relatives of mine, Stan and Irene, and they lived here about... Um, in this area and um, we're going back a bit I mean they lived on land owned by Lord Minton and I mean that was when the Mintons were obviously titled folk before they hit hard times and um, then I think it was his great 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 however many great nephew who made the name famous again Um, you know good old chippy so um, but anyway we're here to talk about Stan and Irene, and like I say, they lived on land owned by Lord Minton, and uh, Stan was a woodsman, and Irene stayed at home. Well, I say she stayed at home. You know, she milked the cow, she made the butter, she did the cooking and the cleaning, she took the eggs to market, and she looked after the children, and, you know, yeah, so she she stayed at home. And um, I think things would have been different for her nowadays because she was never really... One of these people that was built to be spending life indoors, by her own admission, her cooking was terrible. And, well, she wasn't good at a lot of those so-called women's domestic crafts. I mean, whenever Stan went out with the hat that she crocheted for him, oh, the stick that he got for it, it was more holes than crochet. But, you know, he loved her and... You know, she'd knitting it with all heart. And uh, so while she sometimes would rather be out in the woods chopping down trees, I think secretly Stan would actually have preferred to be 
in the kitchen. I mean, she knew she was a bad cook and Stan sometimes thought, well, do you know what? I wouldn't mind being indoors and just having a little crack at this. But, you know, that that's the way things were in those days. And um, Stan was coming back from work. He'd had a bad day. Oh, he'd had a terrible day. But <laughs> it was about to get much, much worse. As he got closer to home, he could... You could smell something in the air and um, it wasn't fresh leaves, no. It was vaguely spicy, spicy kind of a smell. Maybe ginger, mm, combined with a mix of burnt oats and treacle. And it was autumn and, yeah, his day was definitely going to get worse because Irene was making parking. And, well, it was one way to guarantee a quiet evening because, I tell you, once you took a bite of that parking, nobody would be saying anything. It's just like your jaws would be stuck together. But that wasn't just where the bad day ended. No sooner had he got in, settled by the fire, taken his shoes off, picked his pipe up when there was a (coughs) knock on the door. I recognise that soft knock it's Lord Minton's land agent what does he want at this time of night and so he opened the door now then I said to the land agent now then said the land agent Lord Minton he wants these here trees chopping down tomorrow he's marked them up they're the ones around near Big Bend and he wants them all done tomorrow because he needs them in a hurry so you've got to get them done and you've got to get them done before nightfall I'll say goodnight to you and let you get on with your evening. Reet, I said, stand and close the door and settle back down. Then, as soon as he sat down, I was like, oh, no. Well, what's up, said Irene. You're a woodsman, chopping down trees. It's what you do. And he said, I know, but problem is, I lost my axe. And I lost my axe at Big Bend, which is where Lord Minton wants me to go tomorrow to chop the trees down. Oh, you great lummock, said Irene. Honestly, I reckon I could do a better job than you. You probably could, dear, you probably could. Well, I guess I'll have to go and see your brother, see if he'll lend me his axe. And so Stan trotted, trotted away down to his brother, brother-in-law, Matthew. Matthew said, yeah, fine, no problem. Stan didn't explain that he actually lost his axe. He just said there was a bit of a problem, you know, it wasn't sitting right. And so next morning, first thing, Stan set out, axe over his shoulder, his bait box in his hand, so, you know, like his pack up, bit of bread, bit of cheese, bit of parking, and... Oh, do you know, it was a gorgeous day. It was a bit like today. You know, those lovely crisp autumn mornings when the sky is bright blue, a few little streaks of cloud, the air smells fresh. And as he walked further and further along to the river, um, he could hear the buzzards mewling and... And he looked up and there was a red kite just riding the thermals with the crows trying to mob it and bring it down. But life was good, the sun was shining. He got an axe, he was going to get this job done. 
Ah, oh, we'll be tired him if he didn't get it. Jummy didn't have much choice, really. Anyway, he reached the woodland and he lifted the axe and... Oh, this was a good axe. You know, it was well-weighted. He liked the feel of this. It actually was better than the axe that he had. In fact, if he found his axe, he might do a little little bit of a swap, see. But anyway, he lifted the axe and he started to chop away at the trees. Oh, it's a good, clear action. But as he started chopping, it just suddenly... He could feel like... The energy sapping from him, this is ridiculous. And he kept going, but then his limbs started to feel heavier. His legs felt like tree trunks and, and he could just feel himself sucking into the ground and he lifted the axe again and, oh, no, not again. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. But the axe head had come off the axe and it had fallen into the water. <sighs> and with that, Stan slumped down the side of the tree and he lay in amongst the fallen leaves. And as he lay there, the sun seemed to disappear and it got a bit chilly. And, and he noticed what looked to be a mist rising rising up off the water and the water suddenly got darker. It started to change colour until it became deep, deep bottle green. And then light started to appear on the surface of the water and they kind of seemed to, to glow and dance across the surface of the water. A bit like fireflies. I mean, if it was out on the moors, you'd think it was will-o'-the-wisp, but this was on water. And he stood and he looked and, well, these lights then started to join together. And there in front of him stood, well, I couldn't rightly say. I mean, my, my granddad always called it a Yorkshire fairy, but it was kind of like, it was a bit like human form, but, but it had the head. The head was a bit like a toad. The eyes were, were too far apart for a for a human face and they did that blinking thing like toads do and one eye can move one way and the other can move the other and, and the, the creature stood and looked over Stan and said uh, Reet, what we got here then? and, and Stan just looked up and he said um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a woodsman, I'm chopping down trees but I've lost my axe and the creature said you what? <laughs> you're a woodsman and you haven't got an axe <laughs> You're not a very good woodsman without an axe then, are you? Have you tried looking for it? And Stan said, well, well, um, not really, no. I, um, I've lost it in the, in that there water. <laughs> Laughed the creature. I tell you, well, you look a bit dry. You obviously haven't looked for it, have you? And, and Stan said, well, um, no, no, I, I, I can't swim. The creature, you're full of excuses, you aren't you? And they're not very good. If you thought about a change of career, you could maybe become a politician or, I don't know, maybe a, a storyteller. Well, look, said son, I didn't do it on purpose. Well, what's it look like, this here thing? Well, it's an, it's an axe head, you know. It's, um, well, it's about this big and Stan kind of made a shape with his hands. It, it's kind of like a bit like, a bit like a, 
triangle with a blunt end, a bit like a wedge shape with a hole in one end. I, I said the, said the creature, that would be what woke me up. Do you know, I was lying there and I was having, oh, I was having a lovely dream. I was dreaming of maggot. Oh, oh, it makes my mouth saliva just thinking about it. You had maggots. Stan looked and said, well, no, I've eaten a great many strange and sometimes unpleasant things, but no, I can't say I've ever had maggots. Oh, well, said so Chris, you don't know what you're missing. But anyway, back to this uh, thing that you lobbed into the river. I told you that this water is special. This water is pure and it is clear and it is precious. I mean... Folks go swimming in it. Mad folks, I, but they do like to go swimming in this here bit of big bend that they like. And uh, we can't just have anybody chucking rubbish in here, you know. It's not a depository for ironmongery and scrap metal. I don't know what you think you are. Are you from the waterboard or something? No, no, said Stan. It was an accident. And I, and I don't know what I'm going to do because, look, if I don't find the axe and if I don't chop the trees down, well, you don't know what my boss is like, but I tell you, I won't even see myself live to regret it in the morning. All right. All right, said the creature. Well, you've tugged on my heartstrings enough and I tell you, like, I'll, I'll do your deal, all right, but we'll do it on my terms. And I'll get you your axe head back. But let's see, we do it my way. No argument. All right, said Stan. Yeah, yeah, anything. I mean, if I can get get the axe head, that would just be fantastic. Right, OK, then. You need to get, get the shaft of your axe and you need to throw it into the water. Now, you need to concentrate, concentrate. You've not been having a good day, have you? I can tell that. You need to throw the axe handle exactly where the axe head fell. I mean, exactly. Now, bearing in mind only a few minutes ago, Stan had had no strength at all in his arms. He just, he found himself lifting up the axe handle and, well, with surprising accuracy, he threw it <laughs> straight into the water and it landed, well, you probably guessed, spot on where the axe head was. Now, said the, said the weird fella, don't look behind you. I'm going to be just standing a wee bit behind you, but don't you look, you know, a deal's a deal. You just keep looking right at that spot there where the axe handle fell. Just don't mind me. I can't do this with people watching. It makes me feel, gives me the collywobble. So you just do your job and I'll do my job. And so Stan watched and he watched and and the water seemed to to fizz and, and buzz. And, yeah, at first he thought it was raindrops, but to a little tiny, tiny bubbles appearing on the surface of the water and, well, if he didn't know better, he'd swear there was there was heat coming off the river and, well, yeah, actually there was heat coming off the river because if he hadn't seen it with his own eyes, he would never have believed it, but the water was, was boiling, absolutely boiling and there looked to be flames on the surface of the water which couldn't be right, but but that was certainly what he was seeing in front of him. It, it made him think of Irene and her cooking pot over the fire in the way that the soup used to bubble and burn and catch at the bottom. And he kept looking and then there was kind of, like, through the flames, he saw something start to come out and, well, it was, it was the axe. It was coming up head first and... Well, it must be his axe because, I mean, well, let's face it, there can't be many axes lying in the bottom of the river. And 
but the act seemed to have an aura about it. It glowed, and, and there were all strange kind of symbols carved along the handle and along the axe head, and, and he kept looking and he kept looking, and the axe landed in his hand, and oh, he picked it up, and it was magnificent. He never had a, had an axe like it, and he just took an experimental swing, and he, he could feel the power and the strength rushing into his arms, and he grinned from ear to ear. And the old fellow said, right, OK, I've done my job now. Remember what we said, a deal's a deal. What you got there, then? And Sam said, well, I've got myself a new axe, thank you very much. And he remember what he'd always been told. I mean, the thing with with fairy folk is never trust them never no matter what they tell you never ever trust them and he said well look you know we said we'd do a deal i tell you what i'll give you something something that a bit different for you to chew on compared to maggots and he gave the fairy folk a piece of parking and well of course the goblin creature put the parking straight in his mouth and that was the end of of any deal that was done and well Stan went home happy as anything with the new axe and uh, well he had to tell Irene everything including the bit about the parking and um, they did themselves a little deal that every now and again she'd go out and she'd do a bit of chopping down wood and uh, well he'd stay at home and do a bit of cooking and uh, he improved on that that parking recipe and um, like I say I know it's a true story because we've still got that parking recipe in my family and my mum makes the best parking in the world and my great great uncle was a rather fine furniture maker so there you are truth twill out <laughs> thank you very much Vicky the East Leeds Community Radio smattering of applause. There aren't so many people in the studio, but that was absolutely lovely. Thank you very much indeed. I, it was a very, very visual tale, and I really love that about your storytelling. That I could see, I could see everything that was happening, and particularly the mist rising off the and the boiling water. And yeah, oh, I can, and I can, and I can see the toad-faced fairy. <laughs> so yeah, I always think that's the you know words and radio go really well together when they create pictures. Oh yeah, that's what I love about radio. Yeah, you're <laughs> fantastic. Um, so thank you very much. And um, yeah, we we would you you mind staying in the studio and being part of the discussion? Oh that no, we have I'd be now. very happy to. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go to some music now, and then we're gonna get Oz Hardwick on the technology, and then we'll be talking about James. Uh, James's new collection and also making a difference a selection of neurodiverse poets
So you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds Community Radio. Thank you so much to Vicky Orton for that story. I'd be lovely to have you back soon, Vicky. I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in fact, you'll be part of Writing on Air, which we were just talking about. Writing on Air happens 24th of November to the 3rd of December. And uh, a lot of programmes this year, probably about 70, more than we've ever had before, which is absolutely brilliant. And it's a really real selection of a real range of different programmes. So now we're going to be talking about two, uh, two collections of poetry. One is Making a Difference, a selection of neurodiverse poets, which has been uh, collected and edited by uh, Oz Hardwick. Uh, and first of all, we're going to say hello to Oz. Oz, are you there? I am indeed. Hello. Great to have you with us today on Love the Words, and it'd be fantastic to hear about the uh, the Providence, how it came together, and also to hear some poems from from uh, from the book, but also to talk about your new uh, collection as well, Oz. So, and we've also got in the studio, uh, in the sunlit studio of Studio One, uh, we have James Lewis Moran, who is poet, Seacroft poet. Um, and also a, a poet with autism who is has got a new uh, volume of poetry out and he's going to be talking about it now. So hi, hello, James. Hello, Pete. <laughs> Great to have you back with us. Hi, I, uh, I stand before you accused of being a poet. <laughs> I am incriminated by my obsession with prose, profiteering. In essence, I am utterly guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So, so speaks a true poet. Um, tell us about this new collection of poetry, for your sixth yeah, yeah, this is my sixth collection, and it's it was originally going to be about machines and vehicles and all manner of mechanics. And what happened is, during the lockdown years, I became obsessed with cyberpunk. At the time, there was a video game called Cyberpunk 2077, and then when I realised that word itself, cyberpunk, was a genre of science fiction, everything just opened up from Robocop to Judge Dredd to... Um, Demolition Man and so forth. Uh, I mean, Billy Idol became so obsessed with cyberpunk at the time, he even made an entire concept album on it, which people didn't quite like. <laughs> uh, watched the music video Shock to the System. He did a whole, like, film, essentially, in, in music video. It's brilliant. Um, but, yeah, so I thought, let's, let's try and do something with that. And I, I watched endless films. I watched so many different books. I, I can mention them now if you want. Um but yeah, no, so I was reading things about like transhumanism and how there's this kind of um, trying to solve, uh, well, how do you live forever? <laughs> do you live forever through through uh, technology? Whereas like faith and religion is more about like a faith reasoning. So they're kind of facing off against each other. Um, but there's these themes of like searching for meaning, isolation and, and virtual reality being part of that um, technology to help us with that. Um, but one book I read was called Technopoly by Neil Postman. And he meant, I mean, this is paraphrasing, but he mentioned that new technology disrupts existing technology by defaults, industries and organisations associated. So the pen, written words, became a threat to spoken word and memory. Mm -hmm. And likewise, we've got all this, this new stuff coming out that doesn't quite go well with car industries. <laughs> Scooters <laughs> are a threat <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's a whole range of, of, of stuff in there. And you really do tackle technology head on and the human and the technical. But first of all, could we hear a poem from the book? Absolutely. I'll, I'll start with, um, with one that kind of ends it off. But I think it's, it's, a good, it's a good thing to live by. Disconnect. 
Disconnect from the world you know, from gadgets and screens, distractions we are told we need. On my e-skate remote, this is both warning and imperative, a sign words in the sky that I had been searching for. Disconnect. It's the guidance I'd sought for. It's the guidance I'd sought from activities and backlogs, away from hobbies and productive thoughts. This is what I ought to chase. Just to disconnect for once, away from data and its social media demands, then be present without schedule. Disconnect yourself away, away from the dance of typing keys. Seek the blinding sunshine and its UV rays. Allow yourself to roam off-grid. Disconnect. Disconnect. Thank you. That's James Lewis Moran reading from um, Mechanics. Mechanism. Oh, sorry, I beg you. Mechanism. <laughs> I can't read yeah. my own writing. Um, but, and James, I mean, this is your sixth collection, so mm. all, your, all your collections have been... Th- Theme is that un- that is, is that true? Right? Yes. Tell us what I, the other themes were. Um, so I, I can mention this was originally going to be about mechanics and bicycles and all manner of wheeled things, which I'll do another time. But it ended up being about the future. Um, in the lockdown years, we are we cannot escape it. The future of AI, the future of of deep fakes and so forth, and um, even lockdowns and pandemics. So it ended up being about automation, mistrust of technology, the link between man and machine, how essentially we are natural-born cyborgs, um, from our teeth to our insoles to our contact lenses and phones that we never put down. Yeah. And what about the, what about the other books? If, if, people, if people are thinking, wow, I mean, this is about machines, what are his other books about? Yeah, so I've got a collection called Natural Words and that's more of a feel-good collection about nature and light and all those kind of warm, fuzzy, feel-good things. Then you've got Poverty and Politics where I tried to um, translate some of my political and poverty experiences into poetry. I've also got Sea Words which is more about darkness, mental health. Um, There's also Unsent Love Letters which is more of a romantic collection and uh, my first collection, Diary Disturbed the Universe. And, I mean, you, you're, you're very open about being a poet with autism. I am. And um, I'm going to bring Oz in at this point. Mm. And, um, you know, obviously we'd love to hear some more poetry. We'll come back to you, James, in a moment. But, Oz, um, tell us about making a difference. I've got, I've got the, 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 the collection in front of me. It's got a very striking cover. Tell us, if you would, a, a bit about the book and how it came together. Well, it came together as part of the... um, There's been an NHS review into the experience of autistic people in West Yorkshire. And I sort of got involved just as they were looking for um, autistic people to give their um, sort of feedback into into panels and so on. And so I I got involved in that way, um, uh, being autistic myself. one of the things that came up was that they were going to produce a um, an anthology of poetry um, because obviously poetry is a very good way of um, encountering very diverse voices and diverse experiences and so on. And I found myself um, volunteering to edit this because although um, uh, Rhiannon, who was the or is the um, sort of co-creation uh, head of this project, had this great idea. She she had no experience of editing 
um, poetry books or what have you. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I'm trying not to laugh while I'm doing this because, of course, this is the moment my cat's decided to jump on me. Um, uh, but so she had no experience of editing, so I said I've done a lot of that. So um, so that's how I got involved very much um, in the project, and it's and it's wonderful. It's it's a really oh, I believe the cat has got something about. <laughs> You're okay there, Oz. I am, but someone's got caught up in the in the wire off my headphones. <laughs> this is a live right, event. there we are. There's things on the floor. There's um, the cat's untied, and he's looking out the window. Brilliant. Now, I do love live radio for these these very reasons. Um, but but for somebody who might be listening and perhaps not acquainted with the term neurodiverse. So perhaps you could just explain a little about that term. Well, it's. It's the breadth of experiences, and um, and it is quite open to, to debate, of um, people who, I suppose, think in different ways. It's a, it's a difference of wiring, and there's still discussions about whether it's um, perception or processing, but who... So it covers things like the well, the the reviews particularly looking at um, autism and ADHD, but it covers a lot of related, um, uh, I'm very aware that the, the word disorder comes into here quite in, a lot in descriptions, but of course that's one of the things we're talking about. Different difference, I think, is perhaps the best way of putting it. So so it's people who's. Um, uh, Cognitive processing is perhaps slightly different from the the typical. And uh, I'm going to come back to James. I'll come back to you in a minute, Oz. But uh, James, you, you you identify as an autistic. But how, how do you feel that your your autism feeds into your poetry? Well, it's it's a complete unique way of seeing the world. It is the fundamental way I am hardwired. Uh, often you'll hear the words with autism like it's that separate thing I can just lift up and put down, or you're on the spectrum, that mountain over there. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, no, I I am an autistic person, and um, it it allows me to see the world in some very strange ways, some good, some bad. Um, but it, it, I think I read somewhere that it's kind of a, a neurophysical. Um, well, like you say, disorder, but I feel very much in order, just in strange ways. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, it, um, so it affects me kind of mentally, but also physically. There's a, you know, it's obviously the brain's part of that. And um, did that answer the question? I feel like I rambled. Well, no, we'll, co we'll come back to it. But I think I'm going to bring Vicky in here because you have, a, a, you know, a family connection with, with neurodiversity. Perhaps you could talk about that if you don't mind. Um, no, I mean... It's hard because, like you say, it affects everybody differently. I've got three family members, um, all with slightly different autism. It's a bit like by myself as a disabled person, um, I have multiple sclerosis. I could be in a room, people with multiple, we'd all be different and the same with autism. But I think um, it's a hard, it is a hard thing, um, especially because a lot of people are waiting a long time, especially women are waiting a long time for that diagnosis and certainly you feel as a parent you sometimes feel guilty and you're thinking why didn't I pick up on that earlier um they say that I've got a family member who is completely non-verbal has had to live um in institutional care since they were 
in their early teens, which probably wouldn't happen nowadays. I mean, now they're in their 40s, so I think things would be different. But then I've got other family members who um, don't have any problem with communication but do struggle with sensory overload. Um, and I'm certainly learning every day more and more about the way you know, that it affects people. And also, I don't know, um, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but James, you know, that that discussion about disability and autism, mm -hmm. um, you know, where it's not uh, it's not an obvious disability. Mm, invisible and, disabilities. Yeah, but then a lot of the time people say, well, actually, I'm not disabled, I've got autism, I'm not disabled, mm -hmm. you know, I'm me, you know. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of um, complex issues associated with it. Oh, go on, Peter. No, no, I was just saying to say, keep on, Mike. Oh, yeah, okay, keep <laughs> on. Okay. Elliot will tell I mean, you I, I, I read some, some really uh, interesting books. Uh, I think one of them is called I Will Die on This Hill. And it's about this, this parent um, in the US who was being taken advantage of by a healthcare service that didn't really understand autism in the slightest. And they were just sending them to, for, to just various really bad places to look after their child and... Then they kind of got out of this way and somebody said to them, have you ever heard of the actually autistic movement? And you put that in as a hashtag and it just opens up everything, you know, people with lived experience. And it's a really strange one because um, there are some charities that don't see it in the best of lights and, and they're um, quite eugenics in a scary way. Um, but, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a shame that in, in some places it's seen as a disease to be cured rather than just the fundamental way I am hardwired, the accommodations needed. And how what you what your autism brings to poetry mm. and what other in, in poets in the book that we've been talking about making a difference. I mean that's fascinating. I mean, Oz, perhaps would you mind reading a poem from the book? Um Yeah, no. Oh it's it's difficult because I with not being in the room, I don't know when I can interrupt. <laughs> but I just want to pick that that thing up that, you know, the whole point of the book, in a way, is because of what's being brought up, this sort of difference of experience. And, you know, rather than being talking about an experience, everyone in here is writing from their own experience. And they're very different. And everyone in here is a very different writer as well and I think that's one of the things about it and of course the book's been produced to go into sort of libraries and public spaces so anyone might dip into it and it's it's a bit of a I suppose without the commentary judgment or explanation just a bunch of um a bunch of people's voices talking about their own personal experience and it's you know what James was saying you know it's just it's unique unique ways of seeing things and if there's one thing that any project like this does, it sort of shows the um, the diversity in neurodiversity. Mm. Um, As you say in your introduction, you put the uh, diverse into neurodiverse. Yeah, very much so. Um, I would have said the verse as well, because ah. being poetry, but Kate Fox edited a book <laughs> called Neurodiverse, so ah. she's already had that one. Um I'll read one of mine. Um, it's called The Age of Innocence. 
I won't try to explain the way it was, but I was young and the summer was rippling like a dozen Rickenbacker strings. The big city statues were black with Victorian sadness, but the sky garlanded them with fireworks, confetti fluttering from the untouched moon. Families made their own clothes then, their own entertainment, their own excuses and their own spaceships. My body was slight as the scent of folded sheets, as inexplicable as wireless interference, and I was young amongst the big city statues, the down on my neck rippling like a song from a bus stop radio. I won't try to describe what happened, because pirates still ruled the waves. There were only two channels on black and white TV, and no one had even seen the dark side of the moon. Years later, I tried out words like rehearsal and finale, but when I was young there were just statues and strings, the moon shimmering on folded sheets and families stitching their own spacesuits by the light of falling stars. Oh, lovely stuff. Um, sorry, was that the end of the poem? I didn't mean to cut it you off. It was indeed. It was <laughs> indeed. Just as well. Um, just as well. Yeah. I um... I really Sorry. to come back. Yeah, I I realise it's difficult because you're not in the room. But do feel free to interrupt. It's totally fine. We've had an interruption from your cat who had no compunction about interrupting. <laughs> um, but I, I really liked what you said in an, in an article I read online about poetry is the benefit uh, benefits of poetry being psychological, but also physical. And I was wondering. Mm. Uh, yeah, I was going to take you up on that. I know it's slightly slightly the tangent from neurodiversity, but yeah, <laughs> you, you explain. Um, uh, my my first response is to say no. Look up the current research, um, and it's um, just whereas um, James was doing cyberpunk, I suddenly got kind of interested in um, the effects of um, uh, poetry on our well-being because I, I'm sort of, you know, as someone who writes obsessively um, and by personal necessity, I guess. Um, I'm sort of interested in what it's doing to me. And I was not at all surprised to find all the evidence for um, sort of mental well-being, although um, there's a whole tangent that I won't go off on on that, and I do wonder about how it's framed. But also I was particularly surprised to find that it actually, there are sort of, there is evidence that it um, it helps people physically. And it goes, again, back to what James was saying, that in terms of, you know, the mental and physical being, atta um, being attached very, um, in a sort of symbiotic way, that if there's something about your perception of the world, it affects physically the way you are. And I think likewise, um, if you get sort of very involved in something, um, like poetry, which of course is as much about rhythms and so on as it is about anything, and we're very attuned to rhythms right from right from birth. I think it does have this um, these assorted um, suggested medical effects, and I was very surprised to find out that the evidence all shows this as well. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not certainly not going to um, challenge that because I, I I feel that poetry has a physical effect on me which is something about excitement the excitement of the thrill of language so it lifts me but but um, james has something to say yeah i was just going to say in terms of um, reference material and and 
knowledgeable books about about the experience of being autistic. Um, there's a guy called David Atwood, that's two T's, and he's sort of one of the modern leading experts in, in what autism is. I mean, it's quite astounding, really. The guy, um, he didn't even realise that his own son was autistic until he was in his 40s. And it's that thing of uh, sometimes things can be so close to home that you don't see it, even though he was the expert. Mm -hmm. So he, he's definitely one to look into because um, I know that Hans Asberger has, um, well, it's become quite complex the situation with that with that one, that researcher. Vicky, did you want to say something there? Um, yeah, um, I was just going to comment really on the range of poetry within that and the different styles but also um, within storytelling you get the same excitement as you do with poetry but I was quite interested I mean I think if sections of these poems could be made available in public places to help people understand but I remember being given some advice once about if I was storytelling to people with autism who are obviously lumped together as people with autism <laughs> in one group, um, to be very careful about the language that I used. Um, and I'd be quite interested in your take on this also, particularly not to use things like idioms because, um, and again, obviously people with autism lump together because you're all the same group, like the disabled, we're all the same. Um, you know, if you've got any kind of advice because obviously now if I, I and I do tell storytelling to a whole range of people and sometimes I have young children who are quite clearly on the spectrum just one of them said well why didn't you just go and buy a new one and you build that into your, your thing and you go with it but you know um in terms of using things like ideasms and certain terms or terms of phrasing is that something merely that you should avoid or should you just try and treat people like people i think that's a question I, for you oz yeah yeah i don't think that you should avoid it but i think you should be ready to clarify if necessary oh, yeah, um because i mean something that uh and i will um mispronounce their names um someone called anat kassira k-a-s-i-r-e-r and Nira Marshall. I was reading some work by them recently, and I do happen to just have a note of it on my desk, um, who were looking at metaphor and people um, with neurodiverse um, conditions, if I can use condition. Um, I'm not quite sure that's the right word, but it's someone I can think of at the moment while wrestling the cat. Um, uh, that actually uh, re people from sort of considered neurodiverse respond really well to metaphor and also tend to be more inventive in original metaphors which is the opposite of what this um uh the the general sort of uh thought about it that everything is taken in literal terms by people with autism certainly you know, and, and again, we're all different, we're all diverse. I am fascinated by metaphor, and it's one of the one of the things that I has probably led me to, um, you know, being a a, a poet. Um, I've I've written about thirteen, fourteen books, I think, and a couple of thousand probably poems. Um, and it's to do with this fascination of this odd thing called language 
that never really expresses what you want it to say and it's just about agreements and so on. So I think, you know, it can really appeal to pe to a certain group of people who are fascinated by language. Um, and that's their, you know, a lot of us have quite um, focused enthusiasms and, and I think that can be one of them, this, this oddness of language. So I, I certainly wouldn't change it unless you find that you're you're not getting through i guess um but that's what we do with everyone isn't it oh yeah we, you, re we, you we read your of, audience yeah yeah so i think it is just that being sensitive to audience which you know you as a storyteller are constantly doing that <laughs> and adjusting to to respond to things so I, so no i don't really think um hmm. it's necessarily an issue Great. Well, thanks, Oz. We've I'm sadly running out of time, so we, we're going to hear... James, would you like to hear, uh, read one of your poems from yes. Making a Difference? Um, so this one was partly inspired by, to be honest, probably one of the most horrific adverts I've ever seen about autism. It's called I Am Autism, and it, it's honestly an awful advert. It frames it as if this thing will ruin your life, ruin your marriage, ruin everything. It's just awful. It, it's, they've made it like it's a horror film, and you're like, this is supposed to educate people oh, anyhow so i wrote i am autistic i am autistic when people look at me they see a vision of the adult their kid could be but i am just a single autistic person i am not the standard and i am not your kid what you see is a mask i wear or my practiced ability to imitate when I finally go home to discard this, I will no longer be the same as what you've seen. And with all this masking I do, often I can barely unwind from the flashes of a busy day and just accept my insomniac nights. I've been told I am autism, that this is forever a part of me, a sensory supernova of a life and my acceptance wasn't easy. I am an autistic person, yes, but I am not your kid. I am free. Yeah, great stuff, James. Thank you very much. And that's from Making a Difference. Oz, before we leave, could you just... Um, and thank you so much for coming on the programme. Could you just say where people get can get hold of Making a Difference? And also just say uh, something about your new, new uh, work yourself. So that would be lovely to hear about that, if you don't mind. Well, um, Making a Difference... Uh, is available um, th through um, local libraries across West Yorkshire and also sort of public services it's being distributed. There is um, an online version, which I will just say, put in Making a Difference, a selection of neurodiverse poets into Google, because I can never remember online things. I am the opposite of the cliché of the autistic person whacking away at computers and screens make no sense to me um so do have a look at it um my own work um most recently is it, the most recent thing that's come out well it's, it's officially out next month is a sequence of 18 prose poets prose poems by um the hedgehog poetry press called My Life as a Time Traveller, a memoir in 18 discrete fragments, which largely addresses my um, inability to distinguish time, not in a linear sort of, I've got to do this at four o'clock thing, but my confusion over recent distance and the present. 
So there's lots of things about um, not negotiating temporal space very well. Or they're not about that. They're, they're sort of more poems written from within that experience. I tend not to write about things. I tend to write from the centre of something and and try and embody it in the words of even Boland, I suppose. Um, so, so that's the new thing. Great. Thank you so much, Oz Hardwick, for coming on the programme, talking about Making a Difference, which is Making a Difference, a selection of neurodiverse poets. I do recommend it's really got some fantastic poetry in there. And James, tell us where we can get hold of Mechanism. Mechanism is on Kindle and Amazon. It's uh, self-published, which is quite useful because it's print per copy, which is very unusual for most publishers and printers. Um, the other thing is I can always update it when I notice I've spelt something wrong or there is a missing letter like I did last night <laughs> so it's quite useful in that kind of social media way, uh, just edit that, no one will notice, no one will know <laughs> Great, well I recommend that too uh, as it's very a characteristic James Lewis Moran collection of poetry and uh, yeah, there, all these books are in our library in Chapel FM Art Centre and Vicky thanks so much for coming on and, and telling us a story we have to finish there, we've got team music coming on in 10 minutes, thank you Elliot for being on the desk, you've been listening to Love the Words here from East Leeds Community Radio Chapel FM Art Centre, goodbye for now <laughs>